on October the 18th, passed, my brother Max and his wife Nita were celebrating the 15th anniversary of their wedding by camping and riding motorcycles in the Canyonlands Park of southeastern Utah. They decided on this Monday morning that they were going to ride down toward the Green River. They had a lovely breakfast together. Each got on his, her motorcycle and began to ride. About an hour and a half later, they were on the brink of the canyon. They stopped to take some pictures. And Nita said, isn't it beautiful? Have you ever seen anything more beautiful? And then momentarily they went back to their bikes and Nita turned to my brother Max and said, Max, be careful. Be very careful. And Max said, Nita, do you want me to ride your motorcycle down and then come, you want to ride down with me and, and then I'll come back and get your motorcycle? Are you afraid? No, she said, you go ahead. I'll be right behind you. Just, just be careful. My brother Max led the way as he was accustomed to doing, went around the switchback and on down the road, and then he stopped to wait. And when 10 seconds had gone by, he was concerned, and when 30 seconds had gone by, he was afraid. He turned around now and started back around the switchback, and we, when he climbed the mountain and rounded the switchback, looking over on a shelf on a level with him now, he could see her body, and 20 feet away, her broken motorcycle. When the service was over, Max's friends gathered around him to comfort him, to hug him. And he turned to one of his oldest buddies and he said to him this, One day, God has some explaining to do for what happened to my Nita. I would like for you, if you will, please to open your Bibles right now to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to begin to read the 10th verse and read through to the end of verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with the 10th verse. Here God, through the apostle Paul, says, Finally, brethren, please be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against, against whom? I need your help now. Stand against whom? Against the devil. There's the key word for tonight, by the way. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to stand against the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now this verse tells us that someone in, in the universe is in charge of our world, and it's not God. Who is it then? The devil himself. We want to talk about that. We want to lay the groundwork for our moving into the book of Revelation momentarily. There are many folks who say, well, this whole devil idea is a lot of nonsense. The devil is a cartoon character. He's just a caricature with, with horns and split hooves and a pitchfork tail. I want to tell you, my dears, tonight, that whole notion that the devil is a cartoon thing, I believe was born in the fertile mind of the devil himself. And whomever said the devil is alive and well on planet earth made the great understatement of all time. 
He is very real and he's very much alive. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 and the 8th verse would said would say rather he goes around now like a what? What kind of an animal? A roaring lion. Why is he working so uh, so um, consistently and so round the clock? Because he knows what? Time is short. The sands are running out of the hourglass. And so he's not a cartoon character. He is not something from Lion King. He is very real. And he goes around like a roaring lion because he knows the time is running out. Pastor buddy of mine, Daniel Knapp, Danny Knapp, told me about an experience he had not so very long ago. He has a beautiful place upon the Ponderay River in the north of the Washington state. And he said he'd flown in from some preaching assignment to Spokane. His wife met him there, and they decided to spend the night in their cabin up north, not so far from Colville. He said when they arrived at their cabin, it was well after midnight. They got out of their car, got their suitcases, went inside, lighted a fire, turned on some lights, and soon thereafter went to bed. He said the next morning I got up, and I went outside and began to look around to see how things were around the cabin. And he said, atop our footprints... There were the footprints of a big cougar, a mountain lion. And he said, I followed those tracks around to the side window. And he said, I could see where he had paused and looked through the window and watched us. He said, the hair on the back of my neck just began to kind of stand up. Now, he didn't see the mountain lion. Had he been there? Oh, yeah, he'd been there. I have not seen the devil either. But I want to tell you what, I see his footprints in his tracks every single day every day and sometimes to those who say to me well I've never met the devil you know if there's a devil I've sure I've never met him sometimes I say to them well perhaps the reason is you're going down the road in the same direction with him you know if you're following somebody down the road uh, you're not going to meet him but the Bible talks about something called conversion conversion my dears is a u-turn on life's highway and I guarantee you this if you're converted if you make that u-turn on the highway of life you're gonna meet the devil head-on and face-to-face -face and with great regularity he's out there you can be sure a couple of evenings ago I walked out for a bit of fresh air after the meeting and I smelled something that reminded me of a little animal I remember back in my early my teenage years the 50s the happy days uh, they talked a lot about automobiles that had two-tone paint and fluid drive that meant they were multiple colored and they had an automatic transmission and then someone began to refer to this little animal as a two-tone kitty with fluid drive you know what I'm talking about don't you yeah a skunk had been out here I think along the fence and uh, I didn't have to meet him head-on to know he'd been there He's very real. The air that we breathe, we can't see, but it's there nonetheless. John chapter 8 and verse 44, it says the devil believes and he what? Exactly so. That tells us that he has personality, that he has intelligence, that he's very real. There comes then this question, well, if, if he is real, if there is such a thing as the devil, and God is all-powerful, and God is in control, and God is the creator, why did he create the devil? Wasn't it a horrible mistake that God made? Well, God did not create the devil, and that we're going to see very clearly as we begin our study from the book of Revelation. I was in college in Walla Walla in this fair state. Went over and around the Seattle area. Young ladies, beautiful young ladies, began to disappear. And then up on the mountainside, 
in the area of Snoqualmie, their remains began to be found. And then the deaths seemed to have stopped or slowed down in the Seattle area, and a similar thing began to happen in Portland. And then it happened in Idaho, and then in Utah, and then in Colorado, and eventually in the state of Florida. You know whom we're tracking, Ted Bundy. Because he began his work in this state while I was a student here and he was a student at the University of Washington, I began to follow his uh, movements with an almost fatal fascination. And shortly before his execution out at Radford Prison there in Florida, I went and visited with the, with the uh, guards, talked a little bit about him. I've seen his baby pictures. Some of you perhaps have as well. He was a darling baby. He was a handsome man. Had a lot going for him. Until the night of his execution, his own mother swore his innocence. And he told her that from the very outset. I didn't do it, mother. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And about two hours before his execution, he admitted to it. Did we blame his mother for what he'd done? Of course not. She was not to blame. Do we blame God for the devil? Ought we? No, we should not. Now, please open your Bibles, if you will, please, to Revelation chapter 12, and leave there a little bit of a bookmark, and follow with me now as I begin to share some ideas from God's Word. I'm going to begin with a little story that happened to me when I was in my first weeks of ministry. I went to a lady to see about buying property upon which to build a church. The lady soon made it clear that she had no interest in selling property. But she said, if you're a pastor, I'd like to talk with you of something that's rather personal. And I said, fine, Mrs. Panicky, I have some time. Let's talk. Well, she said, I had a lovely family. My husband was a successful rancher, and we had a business in the city as well. My husband took care of all of the business. I took care of the washing, the cooking, the mending. I was the mother, and I enjoyed my role. And then she said one day, and really without warning, my husband died. He left me with all of these business problems that I knew nothing about. And the kids were really just teenagers. They didn't know how to handle things either. And I made some bad mistakes. They cost us dearly. And then she said, we had a daughter who was beautiful. She was the parade queen at the time of the rodeo in our little town. And she was voted most popular in her class. And she was just in the bloom of beautiful young womanhood when she was stricken with cancer. And she wasted when she was eaten alive. She died a most horrible death. And then she said, look over there. Look across the street. And looking through her big picture window, I could see across the street a beautiful brick home. She said, that is the home of my other child, my son. And if you were to go to his home now, you'd find him in the living room upon a hospital bed. He is dying the same death with the same disease. And finally, with tears coursing down her cheeks, she turned to me and asked, Lyle, why is God doing this to me? What have I done? You see, my dear, every human heartache causes a shadow to fall across the face of God. I remember so very well uh, my daddy's conversion. And one evening I'll tell you the story in detail. But once he found Jesus, he wanted to be in church every time the doors were open. He didn't attend a church near where we lived. That had a, a fairly... Um, Sufficient membership, he felt, but there was a little church several miles away that was struggling, and so he would go there and support and pray and lead out. 
And one evening he decided he was going to prayer meeting, as he regularly did, but he asked me this time if I'd go with him. I said, sure, I'll go with you. And so I did. At this church, there was a school in the basement, kind of a walkout or daylight sort of a basement. During prayer meeting or afterward or sometimes someone threw a rock through one of those big plate glass windows of the school. Next afternoon, our phone rang. I don't recall who answered. I do remember, however, it was for my dad. And my dad picked up the telephone. Hello. Oh, hello, Sister McMillan. Hello. Good to hear from you. How are you? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, thank you very much for telling me, sister, and, and you can be sure I'll take care of it. I will take care of it. Thank you. Goodbye. And he hung up the phone and turned immediately to me. He said, Lyle, come into my bedroom with me. We're going to talk. Now, we talked in the barn. We talked at the dinner table. We never, never talked in dad's bedroom. I knew I was in trouble. I didn't know why. Who was it, I asked. He said it was Sister McMillan. And she told me that you broke the window. You threw a rock through the window last night during prayer meeting. I said, Dad, I didn't do it. I don't know anything about it. I didn't throw a rock at all, and I don't know anyone that did. And my dad had me by the hand now and was fairly dragging me into his room. And when he closed the door, he took off a big leather belt that he wore. And he said something like this, Don't make it worse by lying about it. Bad enough that you broke the window. Don't lie about it. And then he gave me uh, what in Idaho we call a shellacking. I told this story one time, and a psychologist came up to me and said, I see now why you have some of those hang-ups about your dad and there's child abuse. I said, forget it. You go talk to someone else. I don't have any hang-ups, and I love my daddy. And it was, by, by the way, back then, boys and girls, that I decided it would be a real good idea if I always told my daddy the truth. I hadn't always told him the truth. I think if I had, he'd have chosen to believe me instead of Sister McMillan. And why there's Sister McMillan's in the church, I'm not really sure. But as I study further in the book of Revelation, I have some better understanding. It says in the book that some folks are in the church for the perfection of the saints. Kind of smooth around, smooth and round off those rough edges, I guess. And so I remember so very well how I felt. I didn't do it. How do you think God feels? Did God push Anita off the cliff? Did God drop the napalm? No. God is continuously being accused of that which he did not do. Now, I want to talk to you for this evening, uh, for the next several minutes this evening, about God and the possibility of sin. The, the likelihood that there's going to come a devil. Some have asked, well, if God is all-knowing, omniscient, why, when he created the world, didn't he create uh, his children incapable of sinning? Now, he might have done that. In his wisdom and knowledge, he might have done that. He might have made you and I and our children and our forebears to be uh, puppet-like, automatons. They would go around and every few minutes perhaps bow down and say, I love you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. I love you. But he chose otherwise. There have been others who said, well, now look. Um, 
Why did God leave open the door of the possibility that one day there would come a problem? Again, if he's omniscient, all-knowing, why didn't he slam that door closed at the very outset? Or, or when this angel becomes a devil, why didn't he kill him? Why didn't he do what was right and logical? In church circles, you ask that question, and you're given this answer, well, it's because man is a free moral agent. And that's a good answer, but it's really not a complete answer. The real answer is uh, spelled L-O-V-E. Greater love than here I think we're ever going to understand. It has to do with the power of choice. And this is really the kernel, of course, of this doctrine of free moral agency. The power of choice. The moment God created our parents, Adam and Eve, he gave to them and to their children and to us as we follow through the stream of time this ability to enjoy life to the very maximum through the power of choice. Now, we use this gift every single day. We don't always recognize it, but we do nonetheless. Some of you folks, I've noticed, are driving beautiful, big diesel pickup trucks. That's what we call them in Idaho. Pickup trucks. And I look at them, and, and I, I just want to go over and touch them, you know, and just kind of fondle them a little. They're beautiful. Uh, but I've noticed that some of you prefer that new Dodge model, and others of you still drive in the Ford. Why? Because you've decided for this reason or that, this one is superior for you, and that one is better for you. You're using this gift that God gave. You ladies use it daily. You go to the store to shop for yourself or for your husband. This tie is pretty, but no, this one. This is the one that goes with that suit. You buy flowers. And by the way, I've seen some of you buying your bedding plants next door in just the last day or two. And I've thought this very idea. They're exercising that power of choice. Yeah. <clears throat> these, these are beautiful. These double petunias are going to be a lovely contrast up against the house. But oh, look at these roses. Look what this is going to be. This is nice. This is better. But this is the very best. Perhaps I come to visit your home. And for Christmas, you purchase for your family a lovely big quadraphonic sound stereo system. And you have a nice selection of CDs. And I step down into your living, your family area, and the thing is playing, and I say, that's the most lovely sound I've ever heard. What is that? That new Bose system? Oh, you say, wait. If you think that's good, wait. And you punch the little button, and the disc spins, and the next cut plays, and you say, now listen to this. Yeah, that's good, but this is better, and this is the very best. Now, as soon as God gave this gift... He ran the risk that one day, sometime, somewhere, someone was going to use that gift to his own advantage and to the disadvantage of God. But the gift that would bring joy to his people was, was so precious to God in his love for his children that he could not withhold it from them on the chance that someone was going to misuse it. Now, the risk was not only a possibility, it was a highly probable a likelihood sort of an event. And God knew it. Did you folks ever go to bed at night, put your head to the pillow, and, and looming out on the horizon of your future, there are dark clouds that are moving your way? It's coming. It's coming. Maybe it's at the workplace. Your boss has been on your back, and this thing is building to a head. Maybe it's with one of the kids, or it could be a problem with your spouse. I don't know if I can survive this thing. And it seems in your mind worse tomorrow than the next day and worse the next than that. It's growing larger and larger and larger and your blood pressure goes up and, and, uh, and you develop stomach ulcers. You're suffering in anticipation. 
And then the thing comes, builds to a head, explodes, and it wasn't as bad as you worried it might be at all. Someone said that suffering in anticipation is greater than reality. And there's a good bit of truth to that. I hear all the time, well, it doesn't pay to worry, it doesn't pay. Well, now wait a minute. In our family, I'm the worrier. And about 90% of what I worry about never happens. Don't tell me it doesn't work. <laughs> the Bible says about our Lord Jesus, he was the lamb slain from where? From Calvary, from when, where? From the foundation of the earth, exactly so. What does that tell us? That tells us that in the anticipatory sense, God has eternally been on the cross. That our Lord Jesus knew this thing was coming long, long before it happened. Millennia before the cross, Jesus knew that one day he was going to have to face that thing. Will I survive it? Will I have the God-given strength? Will I have the faith to see it through? Can I do it? He was suffering in anticipation. The cross of Jesus was the price God was willing to pay in order to give us this gift of enjoying life to the maximum. This free moral agency, if you please. Now, sometimes we fall to the mistaken notion that we are the only ones who ever suffer. Man, my problems are far worse than yours or hers or anyone else in all of the world. I'm the only one who really gets hit. Well, I have some encouragement for you tonight. Now you listen. It may be that some of you have heard this. Happened in Buenos Aires, by the way. A man went into the hospital to have a bunion removed from his foot. <laughs> Fearing the treatment, he asked for general anesthesia. And as they gave it to him, he went into a heart attack. The doctors revived him by cutting open his chest and massaging his heart. They then put him in an oxygen tent where he suffered a stomach contraction and peritonitis, a poisoning that followed. After more treatments, this patient fell off the stretcher or the gurney on which he was being rolled. He broke his leg and his, his shoulder bone, collarbone. He suffered further damage to his heart, making a tracheotomy necessary. He ended his hospital stay a few days later with a breathing tube in his throat, a drainage tube in his stomach, his leg in plaster, his arm in a sling, and the bunion was still on his foot. <laughs> Bad news. Now... We must recognize, my dears, that when we suffer, God, God's suffering is multiplied. How many of you are parents? I want to see your hands. And grandparents, all right? Nearly everybody. You remember when your baby was sick, Mama? He said, oh, sweetheart, Mama wishes she could take your place. If I could trade places with you, I would. Our baby was about 15 months. When Peggy called me, I was in a religious meeting about 50 miles away. She called me and said, Troy is in convulsions. He's burning up with a fever and, and he's having convulsions. She said, I'm going to run him over to the emergency room in Ontario. And I'd like for you to come and meet us there. And I said, all right, dear, I'll be there as soon as I can. And I ran out to the car, and I drove as rapidly as the law would allow. And when I got to the emergency room in Ontario, there was our family doctor, Dr. Carroll, with our little boy. And he had a long face, and he said, Lyle, I don't know as yet the problem, but I'm going to find out. He said it may be something as innocuous, as simple as measles that have not yet broken out. 
or it could be something as serious as spinal meningitis. We're going to find out, but you must help me. And he led me into the emergency room, the inner sanctum, and there was the, our little Troy on a gurney, burning with fever. And the doctor said, I must do a spinal tap. You know what that means? He said, a lumbar puncture. I've got to draw some fluid from his spinal column. And he said, you're going to hold his body in a little half circle. And I said, grab Troy behind the knees and behind the neck and curl him up tightly and hold him there while I run this needle into his spine. And then the doctor went over and from a drawer, a drawer he pulled out a needle that looked to be about that long and that big around. And as I hold, held Troy in my arms, the doctor shoved that thing up into his spine. And as he did, Troy screamed out, Daddy, Dad! How do you think God feels when his children hurt and suffer and weep? God's heart is broken. You can be sure of that. Now we again have this mistaken notion that because God is powerful, he has his way about everything that happens here. He does not. He has his way about very little that happens here on planet Earth. In fact, as we alluded earlier, the Bible is very clear that our enemy is in charge here. Our Lord Jesus himself referred to him as the prince of this world, John chapter 14. He is the prince or the ruler of this world. Now let's talk about where the problem began and why. Revelation chapter 12, and I'm going to begin to read down at about verse 7. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 8 and 9. Revelation 12, verse 7, there was war. Where? Tell me now. Oh, wait a minute. War in Ethiopia, oh, we can relate to that. War on one of the Greek islands, yes. But in heaven? You think you're reading the wrong book. That would be a novel. No, no, there was war in heaven. Of all places, there was war in heaven, the Bible says. And then it tells us who was fighting. It becomes very specific. And it says, the dragon fought with his angels. And they fought against our Lord Jesus. Michael. And they prevailed not. Neither was the place found anymore in heaven. And the dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil and Satan. He who deceives the whole world was cast out into the earth, and his angels were thrown out with him. And by the way now, the scripture from our Lord Jesus' mouth, Luke chapter 10, the 18th, where it says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like what now? Lightning, sure. Uh, it begins now to plug in, doesn't it? It all begins to fit together. There was a war in heaven, and, uh, and our old enemy, the devil, lost this war, and he was kicked out of heaven. Now, why did this war begin? Well, it began over the issue of the creation of planet Earth. The Bible is very clear that our Lord Jesus is not only our Redeemer, He is also our Creator. He was the active agent at creation. You find it in John's Gospel, the first chapter. You find it in Colossians, the first chapter. You find it in the book of Hebrews as well. Jesus was the active agent at creation. He was just ready to hang planet Earth in that void in space when this angel comes to him and says, Look, it's my turn. You've done it so many times before. Any, any time you choose, you may create, but, but I'd like to do that. It's my turn. I want to do it. <sighs> Lucifer became jealous of our Lord Jesus 
Now, leave a little bookmark here, if you will, please, at Revelation chapter 12, and go with me back to Ezekiel chapter 28, and we're going to be lear- begin to learn some things about his personality, his motivation, and all of the rest. Ezekiel chapter 28, I'm going to begin to read here at the 11th verse. All right? Ezekiel 28, beginning with the 11th verse. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, and perfect in thy beauty. Thou hast been in Eden in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and the gold, the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. I'm going to pause here for just a minute and share with you something that most of you perhaps have always known or, or um, have known for a good while, but there may be one here who's never heard this idea, and so I'll share it once more. Hebrew scholars, Old Testament Scholars suggest that when it talks here, the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes, that the idea is that this angel had a very, very special voice. Some preachers describe him as singing in the choir. And by the way, sometimes we get the idea that if you sing in the choir, you're ready for translation. But an old black poet one time said, just because you've been singing in the choir, serving on the board, don't necessarily mean you've been serving the Lord. And so he had this lovely voice. And some go so far as to suggest that when he opened his mouth to sing, out came instant four-part harmony. Do you get that? No overdubbing in the studio, no magic with the tapes. He just opens his voice and out comes a quartet. The Oak Ridge Boys, you know, including that guy that goes way, way up there and Richard Sturban who goes way down there. Yeah. And so he was not only good looking, as is described by all of these precious metals and gems and the gold and all, but now he has this lovely voice as well. We're going to go on to read about his position, his honor, and all of the rest. Verse 14 Thou art the anointed cherub, the one that covers, and I have made you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Let's pause here once again. There are two angels who are right next to the throne of God. Cherubs, they're called. Cherubim, plural. One of them is on the right hand of God with his left wing out like this. The other is on the left hand side with his right wing out like this. And above God's throne, their wingtips touch, and they represent the angelic hosts that always worship at God's throne. And so this angel is not only handsome and uh, gifted with a voice, but he has this position of honor. He's right next to the throne of God. Let's go on, verse 15. You are perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they filled the midst of you with violence. You have sinned, therefore I'm going to cast you as profane out of the mountain of God. I'll destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, because your heart was lifted up as a result of your beauty. You've been corrupted by your wisdom and your brightness. I'll cast you to the ground. I'll lay you before kings that they may behold you. I read a book not so long ago, from a psychologist who works with the beautiful people. You know, the folks that were just born with the the right face, the ladies, the high cheekbones, and the beautiful eyes, and, and naturally curved brows, and all of the rest. 
And at the bottom line of this study, he suggested, you know, as far as getting by in the world and relating to other folks, we're better off if we're not quite so pretty. In fact, he said in some circles, the uglier you are, the better your chances of really making it. And I thought to myself, Lyle, you've got it made. <laughs> Brother, you, you really struck oil that time. Yeah. Well, the idea then is that this angel had no reason to complain. He was handsome. He had the lovely voice. He had the position of honor. He was not um, discriminated against in any, uh, any way at all. And again, this idea uh, that he had the pitchfork tail and, and the hooves and all of that, that came from his own fertile mind. And he passed it off to the church, by the way, during the Dark Ages. The superstition of the Dark Ages is where you find the origin of this devil thing, this, this little cartoon guy with a pitchfork tail. Now, we're going to move from here to Isaiah chapter 14, and we're going to study a little bit about his, um, his ambitions. What motivated him? What drove him? Isaiah, the 14th chapter. This angel who becomes a devil. Chapter 14 from Isaiah. I'm going to begin to read now at verse 12. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from where? Help me just a little bit here. From heaven. All right. You remember we read from uh, Revelation chapter 12 that he was kicked out of heaven when he rebelled. And we read from Jesus in Luke chapter 10 that he fell from heaven as lightning. And now we have it from Isaiah once more. How are you fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning? Why were you kicked down to the ground to weaken the nations? Well, because you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Now we're going to pause right here and go back to Revelation chapter 12. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 14 and go with me once more to chapter 12. And we're going to read now the fourth verse. This war breaks out in heaven between our Lord Jesus and his holy angels and, uh, and this, um, this Lucifer angel who becomes a devil. Verse 4 says that when he was kicked out, his tail drew a third part of the... Oh, there it is again. The stars. Now, in Bible symbolism, Old and New Testaments, the word star is used to symbolize a personality. And we continue to do that very same thing today. We talk about football stars and movie stars in the very same way still today. Now, back to Isaiah chapter 14. Continuing on at the 13th verse. You've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit in the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Pause here with me for just a moment. If ever you've seen a picture of Queen Elizabeth of England, Queen Victoria for that matter, you find that only she sits upon the throne. Prince Philip does not sit upon the throne. He is not the equal to the queen. He is prince simply by virtue of his marrying the queen. He is not uh, her equal. He does not sit upon a throne. He stands behind her. And when he walks traditionally in a procession, in a public place, he walks behind her to show his submission, his inferiority really. And so this angel who becomes a devil says, I will be above the other angels. I also will sit. I'll have a throne. I'll rule. And then it goes on. I will ascend, it says in verse 14, above the heights of the clouds until I will be like whom? Come on now. I will be like the Most High. You know, he had everything going for him. Good looks, the wonderful voice, the position. But that wasn't enough. He said, I'll be God. I'll be God. 
Uh, when in a few evenings we study uh, the, um, the great um, flood of spiritism and occultism and new ageism, we're going to see that same attitude again. Don't look beyond yourself for, for Godness. Line up your chakras. Get in touch with the power within you. Recognize that you're God and there's nothing then that you cannot do. The original lie. I'll be God. I'm God. Now when he began to promote this idea in the courts of heaven and amongst his buddies, God called him in. And he said to him, listen, Lucifer, I love you. I've never denied you a thing. I've made you extremely handsome. I've given you this lovely voice. I've given you the position of honor. You're the cherub that covers. I haven't denied you a thing, but you can't rule. You can't sit on a throne. You cannot create. Now, by the way, the Bible is very clear that when our Lord Jesus, after his ascension, uh, entered the courts of heaven, he did what? You remember? He sat down at the right hand of God. He was amongst equals, you see. Jesus sits on a throne. But God said, you can't sit, Lucifer. I'm sorry. You can't do it. Please deny yourself this. Put it out of your mind. Humble yourself. Someone said, by the way, that the first one to see the cross was Lucifer. You remember what Jesus said? Let a man deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. The cross principle is self-denial. And this in the courts of heaven, God asked the angel Lucifer to do, and he rejected it. He said, no, I, I won't follow the cross principle. I'll exalt myself, not deny myself. Put it out of your mind, Lucifer, please, I beg you now. When he left the presence of God and from this private little meeting, he gathered his angel buddies around him and he said, you know, I've just had a talk with God. I wanted to create. It's really my turn. I have the ability. I have the talent. I have the ambition. But God has called me in and said, no. Put it out of your mind, Lucifer. Humble yourself. Deny yourself. Now listen, guys. When did he ever deny himself? When? Tell me. And Jesus. When has he ever denied himself anything? If I want my way about the slightest thing, he says, no, you can't do it. But he has his way about everything. And the angels began to look at God now with a question mark in their minds. This angel who is de determined to turn himself into a devil has placed a question in the minds of the angels of God. Is God a loving, kind, merciful parent? Or is he only just an autocrat who pulls the strings and causes his angels and his children to dance to his little tunes? You see, the devil now had perfectly framed God. He turned all the attention, all the issue from himself to the face and the character of God. God was on trial. And Revelation chapter 14, beginning verse 6, makes it very clear. And there is a special appeal to those who live in the last days to return to the worship of God who, the hour, because the hour of his judgment is here now I'm going to enlarge your minds and your horizons here for the next little bit the Bible is very clear that God created other people planets I'm asked this question quite regularly do you think there are other planets upon which folks live the answer is not mine it's from God it's yes yes and you find in the book of Hebrews, where it's very clear in the 11th chapter, verse 3, he made worlds. 
And then in Colossians, the first chapter again, worlds. And the word that is translated there in both passages as worlds is not uh, just a, an empty thing, just a, a planet out there that is a vapor and a void, but rather where people live. Not cosmos, you see, but ekomenos, where people live. And so, not only were angels watching, holy and unholy, fallen now and uh, unfallen, faithful, but the other planets are tuned in. Here's a verse for you, A students, by the way. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I believe it's the 10th verse, the 9th verse. 1 Corinthians... Uh, Corinthians, the fourth chapter and the ninth verse, and it says in the King James, he has made us a spectacle. And some of the other translations make it even more clear. The idea is that planet earth is the stage upon which this great drama is being played out. And in this play, my dears, there is no place of neutrality. There is no spiritual Switzerland. Either you're a protagonist, either you're on God's side and in his favor, or you're an antagonist, you're in company with the devil and his evil angels. But there is no neutrality. Oh, so now again I say all of the focus was moved from God, or rather from uh, this angel who's becoming a devil, to the face of God and to the character of God. Now, what is God to do? God might have said, listen, Lucifer, I warned you. I made it very, very clear to you. You've crossed the line, and now you must pay. And God might have just zapped the devil, just vaporized him. Do you think the other angels would have then worshipped God? I think they would have, but for the wrong reasons. They would have been afraid. Someone might have said, look, let's have a little party. Let, let's, do a, let's have a little rebellion here. The others would have said, oh, don't, do, don't even go near the line. He'll zap us just like he did Lucifer and his buddies. Don't do it. On the other hand, God might have said, well, now look, Lucifer, you had nothing with which to compare this thing, I know. This is the first time either you or I have had to deal with a problem like this. I tell you what, we, we'll just tear out this page or turn over a new leaf. Bygones will be bygones and, and we'll start anew. Forget it. I forgive you. For, forget it. Would that have worked? No. It surely wouldn't have been very long, very long at all, until another little group would have said, let's have our party. Let's do our little thing, have our little rebellion. God will forgive us and take us back. He'll have to. He's fair. He'll have to because he did Lucifer and the others. So instead of opting for either of those positions, God chose to take a vigorous action. He said, because of what has happened here, my son is going to die. Now, by the way, my dears, it was the announcement of the impending death of the Son of God that stopped the infection of sin from spreading to other people, planets. It was arrested right then and there. As soon as it was announced that Jesus was going to take on human form to pay the penalty, the price of sin, the devil had an eager and early optimism. If he comes in human form, I'll get him. I've had 4,000 years of practice, beginning with Adam and Eve and right on down to the present. No one has been able to withstand my temptations. I shall get him if he comes in human form. 
God said, look, the devil says that I am to blame for what has happened here, for this rebellion now. I am not to blame. I refuse the blame, but I will take the punishment. Punish me for what has happened here. I was in the home of a dear old preacher by the name of HMS Richards Sr. He told the story of being a boy about 11 years of age on his grandfather's farm while his father and mother were off in Kansas holding evangelistic meetings. Grandfather's place was in Colorado. Before mother left, she'd taken Harold Richards aside and said to him, son, there's a certain thing that you must not do. I'm warning you now, you can't do it, don't do it. Promise me you won't do it. And Harold said, all right, mother, I won't do it. She was gone only a day or two, and a neighbor buddy came by and said, Harold, let's do this. And Harold said, no, mother, told, I promise mother. She'll never know, she'll never know. Well, they did it, and they got caught. And when mother came back, when mother Richards came back, she was told what her son had done. And so she took him aside and said to him, Harold, I'm not the mother I ought to have been or you wouldn't have done this. I failed you somehow and so you're going to punish me. Do you have your knife? And Harold said, yes, I have my pocket knife. Go down to the creek then and cut a switch that is, big as your, that is as big as your thumb and about two feet long and then bring it back and you're going to beat me on my bare back. And dear old Richard said, I went down to the creek, took out my knife, and dilly-dallied around for the longest time. Finally, I found a tiny little willow, smaller than a pencil, and I cut it and took it back and handed it to Mother. And she said, no, Harold, no, you go back now, quickly, and you get a willow that is as big as my thumb. And so he said, seeing I couldn't get by otherwise, I went back and cut a willow as big as my thumb and about two feet long, and I brought it back. I handed that to Mother. She said, no. You're going to beat me. And then he said, Mother turned to face the barn and bared her back and her shoulders. And I had to beat her bare back until the welts began to arise. And he said, from that moment on, I never disobeyed her again. It just broke my heart to whip the back of my mother. And this God knew when he said, I'll take the punishment. I refuse to accept the responsibility, but you punish me. And so Jesus came down. And the experiment was put into place. The angels were watching, fallen and unfallen. Worlds were watching, unfallen worlds. And they saw a beautiful little baby born in a manger. They saw him begin to grow into sweetness and kindness and goodness. And when he reached puberty, they watched as the neighbor kids would ridicule him and put him down and shake their fingers in his face and say to him, little Jesus boy, we know who our daddies are, but who's yours? Ha <laughs> ha, you don't even know who your dad is. And instead of being angry and striking out or taking his ball and going home, Jesus loved his little friends and the universe and the world loved him. They began to follow him then through his ministry. He enters the city through that gate, and before he exits through that, he's opened every blinded eye and healed every hurting heart, straightened every twisted, withered limb. And yet outside that gate, they're waiting, the mobs, with stones in their hands to take his life, and he only loves them in return. Pray for those that persecute you, he said. And then the universe follows Jesus to a farce of a trial. False witnesses are brought in, and they tell lies against him. He says nothing, nothing at all. And finally, at the command of the directors, 
A soldier brings a dirty old rag, just a rotten, smelly old thing, and throws it over his head and ties it there while Jesus' hands are tied behind him. And the soldiers begin to strike him in the face, and soon his own beard is soaked with his blood, and he says nothing. And now he's dragged over to the place of the pavement. He stands trial now before Pilate and the Roman officers. And again, lies are told against him. He says nothing, nothing at all. He's taken outside, his hands now tied to a post, and a whip is applied to his back until it's open and bleeding and raw. And then one callous soldier brings a splintered cross and drops it upon his bleeding shoulders and says, all right, big guy, take her up the hill. And Jesus begins to drag that cross up the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow. And when finally they arrive... Two others are struggling against the men that would execute them. But Jesus of his own volition goes to his cross, lays down upon it and spreads his arms. And in cadence with the ring of the hammer to the nail, he's praying, Father, forgive them. Please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. Lay not this into their charge. Please forgive them. And soon now the crowds have gone and left only just a few to watch. And the cross is raised with rough Roman hands and dropped into the rocky hole that's been prepared for it. It sinks to the bottom and strikes with a sickening thud that tears the wounds around the nails. And still Jesus is praying, please forgive them. Please forgive them. And about three hours later, he lifts up his head toward heaven and cries out, Oh, Father. Into thy hands I give back my breath. And he lowered his head and he died. And now finally God had the answer to the charges that had been made those millennia prior in the courts of heaven. You say I always have my way. You say I never deny myself. I'll never humble myself. You say that I'm only a puppet master. I'll show you what I'm willing to do. I'll demonstrate to you my love. I'll step down from the courts. I'll get off my throne. The Creator's throne. I'll step beneath the dignity of holy angels. I'll come down to planet earth, this place that I've made. And I'll get beneath kings and queens. I'll become smaller and less than businessmen. I'll become less than the beggars on the street corner and the lepers who line the streets. I'll be willing to become a little baby in a smelly barn. That's how much I love you. That's how much I'm willing to humble myself. You can beat me all through my life. You can accuse me and torment me. You can say that I have no parent and, and uh, refuse to play with me. And while I hang on the cross defenseless, you can clear your throats and spit on me and stone me. But you'll never make me hate you. I love you. I'll always, always love you. What do you suppose it was, my dears, that redeemed mankind? Some flowery speech delivered from an ornate throne? No, no. But rather one supreme act of self-surrender when the universe saw God upon a cross. And now, from the face of the devil, the mask is removed. The facade is gone. He's revealed for what he's always been. One heinous, macabre monster that would kill very God if he could. You know, folks, it never ceases to amaze me. Why, after folks know the issues, 
They know about the struggle that began in the courts of heaven and how it was transferred here to planet earth. And they know that there is no neutrality. And in spite of all of this knowledge, they'll choose to be on the devil's side. They'll play his games, listen to his music, dance to his tune. Sell their very souls for just a few bucks, for just one more party. You know, folks, you could serve that you could get on your knees and worship the devil and kiss his feet from this day on to the end of your life, to the end of eternity, and he will only hate you in the end of it all. That's the only emotion he knows. Why do we so oftentimes choose to be on his side? Peg and I and our little family lived in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia for three years. And because of our love of history, we began to visit the great battlefields of the Civil War. Antietam, Bull Run, Manassas, New Market, and a host of others. Near New Market, they tell still the story of the day the Union forces marched from Washington, D.C. toward Richmond, the new capital for the South. And in their marching, they went by a home not far from Manassas, Virginia, where the husband and the young men, the sons, had gone off to Richmond to defend the capital of the South against the forces of the North. And when the northern armies marched by this farm, the little mother went first to the stove, to the fireplace, and got a stove poker. And then she ran out through the door, jumped off of the porch, and out to the gate she ran. And in the face of every oncoming northern soldier, she shook that stove poker, shook it again and again in a menacing gesture. And as she shook the stove poker, her daughter called from the front porch, Mother, what do you think you're doing out there? And from over her shoulder she called back, I may not be able to do much, but at least they'll know which side I'm on. Which side are you on tonight, huh? A good while back, I decided I'm going to be on Jesus' side in this great controversy. This spec in this, this drama, this play that's being played out here upon the stage of planet Earth. This drama that angels fallen and unfallen are watching and worlds continue to watch. They didn't go channel surfing at the time Jesus died on the cross. They want to see the end of this thing. And they're watching you. They're watching me. Which side are you on? Tonight, by God's grace, I'm determined I'm going to stand with the, in the company of Jesus and my Father God and the Holy Spirit. I don't care what the neighbors say. It matters not to me now. No matter what the kids say, I'm going to stand beside Jesus. And I'm sorry for the days that I've been on the other side of the line. I'm sorry about that. But tonight, with Jesus, I stand. And if you want to tell Jesus and the angels... And our enemy, whose side you're, if you want to say, I'm on Christ's side, then you stand to your feet where you are. Who will be the first to stand with me? Now, don't do it if you don't mean it, but if you mean it, don't you sit there. Oh, Lord, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to thy cross we cling. Let's pray. Your word, dear God, has been so clear. We see again tonight the issues plainly spelled down. That there was war in heaven. 
They're a lovely angel, a privileged being, but a created being, decided to lead out in a battle against God and against our Christ because of his self-pride. He had to be cast out. And he and his evil buddies transferred the war here to planet Earth. And they're working now around the clock because time is so short. As we see the evil host and the myriad of demons, we could become discouraged. We could be fearful. And yet we remember that he that is in us, our Lord and the Holy Spirit, is far greater than he who's in the world. May we always stand beside the cross. May we use this power of choice that was given to us originally as a gift to your glory and your honor and our eternal benefit. And we'll give you the praise tonight as we do always. In Jesus' name, amen.